Jim Coyne. I have the moniker Coyne the Round on social media. I'm an independent scholar, emeritus professor at the uh, University of Pennsylvania uh, Medical Center, um, Department of Psychiatry, where I was professor of psychology, tenured professor of psychology in psychiatry with a lot of other titles. I first came across your work because, as you know, or listeners and uh, viewers will know, I do uh, a lot of research on um, criticizing or being quite critical of um, positive psychology, happy, so-called happiness science, and this sort of thing. And so I came across some of your work on um, the role of positive thinking in cancer. Uh, and I wondered if you could give one message to the people watching, what would it be about positive psychology? Is this something that we should embrace or is this something we should be careful about? Um, well, first off, I'm not negative psychology. I'm just a realist. And I think that some of the tenets of positive psychology that have been presented to us are more appropriate to certain contexts than others. And that some of the tenets are preached with an agenda to, uh, it's kind of like an opioid of the people. And you want to calm people and you want to give them directions that if they are distressed, they should immediately uh, seek consultation with a positive psychology advisor or a therapist. And I think it, it's, it's conformist. And I think particularly from people from different backgrounds like myself, um, at some point becomes toxic. You are not just a critic of positive psychology, but you're also critical of some um, other things um, that sort of get passed around in the media and in policy as being you know, just straightforwardly listen to the experts. Um, can you tell me about the blog post that you put out today? Uh, yeah, I was particularly interested. Um, uh, I rediscovered an old uh, clip of a um, a uh, Dutch Olympic swimmer who uh, won the Olympics, uh, and he uh, he first got back into swimming at 19 after he had been diagnosed with leukemia. And uh, so when he won the Olympics in 2008, everybody started comparing him to Lance Armstrong. And Lance Armstrong was sort of the cultural hero back then. We didn't know that he, you know, he doped or that he cheated. And uh, we only know him as a champion of uh, mind over matter. And he claimed that uh, he approached his cancer in the same way that he approached uh, a coming bicycle competition. And back then, I had found a clip uh, from The Onion, and I had mocked him as saying that he was demanding a rematch with his cancer. Uh, it was from The Onion. That was satirical. But it was the, the, I was trying to get the absurdity of, of, of the fight uh, metaphor, the, and, uh, because the problem with the fight metaphor is that somebody can lose for reasons that have nothing to do with their efforts. And cancer isn't just. Cancer isn't uh, controlled by the mind. And a realistic perspective involves us uh, embracing that. Where did this idea come from, this notion that you could use positive thinking or, or some sort of mental pathway to, I don't know, making headway on cancer? You, one of the lines in one of your papers that has always stuck with me is, um, positive psychology's relevance to cancer care is a 
something like a myth that will not die. <laughs> Do you remember writing that? Sure. And um, I think we need our illusions, uh, but we should have two minds about us. Uh, one, that we, uh, we need direction and uh, we need morale. But on the other hand, we need not to get into foolishness or uh, unnecessary defeat. And sometimes for me, from my background, I've always felt that it wasn't important that you win because that could be beyond your control. But you were responsible for the quality of your effort. And I think the same thing with, with cancer. It's how you live, not that whether you, you live longer. And I certainly know friends of mine like Barbara Ehrenrich, who made the decision not to continue her cancer treatment when uh, her cancer metastasized because she judged the quality of the resulting life would make it not worth living. There's this idea, and this is what Ehrenreich um, criticizes in her work, um, or criticized in her work, which was that um, if you just kind of put on enough pink and wore enough ribbons and, and had the right attitude, that you would somehow have a better chance of recovering. And she really didn't like that. And she, she didn't like the idea also that you were supposed to use cancer as a kind of narrative to, in a positive narrative in, out of which you're supposed to develop meaning in your life. And she really rejected that. She found it to be quite meaningless. And I've read a lot of um, this kind of literature that says what winds up happening is, is patients who don't develop that kind of narrative, the one that we like to hear, right? The one that uh, is exciting and moves forward and overcoming adversity becomes reason for being. And people who don't adopt that, who see, you know, the possibility of death as a disruption to one's narrative and uh, an incredible source of meaninglessness become bad patients. Um, and I wondered if you had any thoughts about that, about those kinds of critiques, that it, it sort of sorts us into good patients and bad patients. And Aaron and Ehrenreich sort of says that the end result is that you become responsible for your own suffering. Exactly. But I, I think uh, Barbara Ehrenreich is very layered in her approach to things, and that's what really impresses me. Before she wrote Right Sided, or what was published in England has Smile or Die, she wrote uh, Nickel and Dimed. And what she had done is she had gotten frustrated with the abusiveness of her PhD program, she finished up and then she went and worked at Kmart and she decided to understand what that experience was like. And she had the full support of her husband, but the deal was that she would go there and not have any money from him because she had lived like a poor person. And um, I, I think there's a, a kind of quiet Marxism about it all in the sense uh, not revolutionary, but in the sense of a skepticism uh, about the order and particularly about uh, neoliberalism. And that's I, the way I bonded with her is I was sitting at home in Philadelphia uh, and uh, I got a call from her saying that she had just finished an interview with Marty Seligman and he insisted be at the Philadelphia Art Museum. It was dreadful and she really needed a drink. And I drink. I said, I sure did. And I knew a great place to get some bourbon uh, on the water in back of there. And so I met with her for hours and we struck up a relationship and uh, we started meeting in various places and uh, gradually some other people started coming and the press found out about that. And so we were in, um, I believe it was in the meatpacking district and um, about six people 
in uh, New York. And somebody from CBS approached us and asked to enter. And uh, we, we, how did they find out? They, they were vague about that. And we said, no, they couldn't. And so they said, what is the meeting going on? And so uh, Barbara Held was with us. She's a psychologist from Bates. And uh, she said, we're the negatives. We had no idea what that meant. But then people started applying to be a negatier. And uh, they send CVs. And uh, but uh, it wasn't that kind of group. We weren't we weren't a revolutionary group. We were just a bunch of people like to get together and drink and exchange uh, ideas. And uh, and some of the people were atheists in the group like her. And but that wasn't really they weren't like radical. They weren't disrespectful of people who need beliefs. And I think that's an important aspect of, of my approach and hers that we respect the people's need for beliefs. And we don't, uh, we don't, we're not destructive about that. But we will point out sometimes for us and for them when the beliefs might not work as well as they're supposed to. I grew up in a context, uh, Chelsea, Massachusetts. It's the smallest, most impoverished uh, uh, municipality in um, uh, in Massachusetts, and it originally was a Jewish ghetto. Um, and in the in the uh, in, in the sense that it was almost uh, primarily it was an alternative place to Ellis Island for Jews to arrive, and then the Italians came after them. And uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, heroes of that period was Rachel Alger, and he wrote about experiences of upward mobility, and he made so much money doing that. And he didn't know what to do with his money at the end of his life, so he gave it formed the National Honor Society, created scholarships. And it was a whole series of books, and I, I guess I would be Dirty Dick in that. Uh, and as somebody from there uh, who uh, comes from extreme poverty and uh, meets a lot of obstacles, including corruption, and Chelsea was a very, very corrupt city when I was uh, growing up. Even the school board was seized by the state. The city government was arrested after uh, gambling to celebrate an election. And, um, but the idea was that if you did all these things, you could live happily ever after, be the American myth. And I was really impressed with that because I needed that to get out of there. And I was a poster child for the uh, right wing when I uh, left welfare in New London, Connecticut, and went to college. Uh, but I felt I was being used. And I, I really reacted to that. I was a really radical individualist, and I felt I, I was always responsible for what I did. But I, I realized that the, the deck is stacked. You know, the cards are marked, but you've got to do the best you can. And um, I also, at that time, uh, I was, uh, as I often had been, so-called uh, man of the household because my uh, mother was without a, a male partner. And at that time, I had a 100% disabled brother, uh, half-brother. And so it was my job to look after the family. Uh, welfare wasn't enough money when you have a chronically ill person. And so I had to both hustle, but I was very strict Catholic. So I had to do it within the rules. And sometimes you bet the rules, but you had to, you had to figure it out. You know, For instance, when, uh, when there was enough money, I used to uh, collect bottles and bring them back to a grocery store, but that exposed you to bullies. And I found what I could do 
is I could collect old newspapers and I could clip the coupons out of them and sell the coupons at a discount to the checkers who were corrupt. And I would go try to rationalize that with the priests. And I, I learned how priests uh, allow you to, going back to you know the uh, Reformation, you don't have, you don't, you can uh, not tell the truth and not lie. I could feel morally okay that I was ripping off the supermarket. So I want to come back to this this um, very interesting story of, like, of how you grew up and what what kind of path you took to becoming where you are now because it's it's a very different one I think than many people in academia uh, take. Sure. But I wondered a lot of people might be wondering what is positive psychology. We spend most of our lives trying to feel more meaning and happiness. We strive to discover and live what many psychologists and philosophers call the good life. Could it be possible, though, through science and understanding, we can figure out what the good life consists of and teach that to everyone? That, in a nutshell, is what positive psychology hopes to do. Positive psychology is a sub-branch of study within psychology and is defined as the scientific study of what makes life most worth living. Could you give me a sense of what this movement, I suppose you could call it, is and, and who's at the head of it? Well, definitely... Uh... Martin Sullivan, I think, is one of the greatest marketeers that's, that's ever been in psychology. And among his many accomplishments is that uh, he was president of APA and is, is also inseparable that he developed the learned helplessness theory, which was the underlying framework for a lot of the torture uh, in which uh, psychologists participated. And he may have not... Uh, approved of it initially, but he certainly didn't object to it becoming a framework and that the prisoners were to be like the, they'd be waterboarded and the direct analogy is the dogs that are drowning uh, in a situation where they're helpless. And the idea is the waterboarding will reduce them to like the dogs, the passivity and to compliance. And uh, on the other hand, I don't think there's a positive psychology and negative psychology. I think there's just psychology. And there are lots of research on being positive, on being grateful, on being mindful. And the question is, does it meet empirical standards? But in Seligman's framework, it's much more, it become much more of a cult or a religion or just a group hug. And you're not supposed to be critical of it. And it often serves um, other purposes. He has a, a money-making master's program in applied positive psychology, not in the psychology department of the University of Pennsylvania, but in the education school. And the education school is notorious for its money-making master's programs. So you can get into them without having any qualifications. So when Smirnoff, I think that's his name, the, the comedian on public radio wanted to enter the program, he thought it would be great PR and he accepted it immediately. I grew up in the former Soviet Union. My parents and I lived in a communal apartment with nine other families. When my parents wanted to be romantic, they would send me to look out the window. One day my dad said, so what do you see in the window? I said, our neighbors being romantic. He said, how can you tell? I said, because their son is looking at me. My parents laughed. At that moment, I felt that I was in the presence of love. 
As a child, I made the discovery that laughter must be the way people communicate to one another that they're happy. Did you know that there have been actual research into relationship between laughter and happy marriages? A lot of the people who go into the program, uh, they, they have, they're not allowed to have scholarships from the university, it's the money-making program, and they have to pay out-of-state uh, tuition fees. And a lot of them go into a wealthy and can afford to do that. And they don't go in with any uh, knowledge of uh, psychological methodology or psychological conditions outside of what they're presented in the program. So it becomes very much an indoctrination. And, um, and he throws away a lot of things that would detract uh, uh, numerous things in the traditional psychological literature. Interventions just aren't that good. Uh, assessment is pretty inaccurate. And any interventions based on assessments uh, have to be evaluated. And um, I was critical of that because I was critical of the role that uh, myths had played in my own uh, upward mobility. It didn't help that he, that he tortured dogs and um, they also uh, uh, justified the torture of the uh, 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 it was a model for uh, torture of prisoners. I remember the one time I met him uh, was that he was a visitor at Stanford University and I was working at my lab up the street at uh, the Mental Research Institute. And we, uh, we had quite a lively debate without him knowing that I had a paper just submitted that was critiquing his original learned helplessness model. And uh, he was pretty outrageous. And then he, he only later did he figure out who I was and he regretted some of the things he said. Like one of the things he threatened to sue me about, which he later said publicly, was that he firmly believed that you could be a psychologist and you could be like a rock star and make all the money of a rock star and you could achieve a celebrity status. When I said that to a, a newspaper uh, journalist, and, and she used it in an unflattering way, he threatened to sue me. But then I found out he said the same thing to other people. That was a routine way of talking about himself. So he shot himself in the foot, basically. But what what specifically were you very critical of, in um, terms of in terms of uh, you mentioned interventions and their evaluations? Because uh, one of the criticisms that I get all the time is like, "Geez, Ashley, like." You're way too critical. This stuff would never become as famous as it, as it is, as influential in policy as it is, if it didn't have a firm scientific foundation. So what exactly have you picked out as, as not great in terms well, of the science? First up, about that assumption, I'll get to the specifics. I think lots of times what we accept as evidence or not being evidence-based has little to do with the evidence that is being approached or being presented but to the structure in which it's being evaluated. And so bad science not only involves bad scientists or confused scientists, but it involves journals who want that and institutions that want that. I remember I, I wrote an obscure manifesto in I think 2010, the role of the critic in health psychology. And I firmly believed at the time that you could train citizen scientists anybody who wanted to learn how to evaluate experts and evidence for themselves. But I looked at some of the particular tenets and they were, they were, they were very weak. Like the idea of practicing gratitude. Of course, it is useful to be grateful. You don't want to be ungrateful, but if it just becomes reflexive 
uh, it can be get you in trouble if you are grateful to people who don't deserve it or people who exploit your gratitude. And um, I, I think uh, even kindness, uh, what's the, the rock song, sometimes it's cruel to be kind. I, I think that sometimes uh, you can hurt people's feelings with your criticism, but you, you're, you, if that's your contract to be able to do that, then it's okay. So like when I used to coach uh, top scientists in uh, Europe uh, to write uh, competitive grants, they would actually have to have informed consent with me that I had to write the hurt the feelings and we could discuss it, but that uh, they had to understand that my motive was in their interest. That too was discussable and debatable. But uh, niceness can be toxic. What you were saying about cruel to be kind um, and kind to be cruel really um, struck a chord with me because I, I think people don't realize that the latter has become so powerful now that now cruelty requires the facade of kindness. That they, the most cruel and horrific and racist things now get said every day in the guise of like some kind of leftish language of, I don't know, decolonization, all sorts of things. But, but also this kindly language of, of, you know, helping minorities and so on. I've talked about this endlessly on the podcast. So I won't go into it again. But, it, you know, in order to, you know, rehash all of these, not even realizing, I suppose. I say in order to, it makes it sound causal and conscious. But I think people don't realize that they're rehashing old sort of stereotypes about um, indigenous people and about black people and so on as, uh, you know, somehow cognitively less or damaged or whatever. But through the narrative of like r racism and colonialism and slavery and so on, they, they say, oh, but it's not your fault. You know, that's why you're damaged. That's why you have these problems. You're like, well, you're still explaining my problems in terms of me being internally damaged. You know, so this, this sort of kindness is what enables an extraordinary level of cruelty, this sort of paternalistic uh, attempt to explain away problems that are really structural, really difficult to deal with in terms in individualized terms. I think it's even worse than that. Yeah. I don't know if you remember the close of the movie, French Connection, where there's a, a Frenchman, uh, very dignified, probably even a diplomat, going down the river on the uh, on a barge, and the, uh, the, the cop, Poppy, is helplessly watching him get away with his white gloves. And I think that a lot of situations that are woke uh, are not that what we think it is, it's that somebody like the French diplomat escaping on the uh, barge, being able to keep their uh, gloves clean as someone else does, did all the dirty work. You know, for example, almost 100 years to the day, there was an election in Philadelphia. And elections were always racially charged and involved lynchings, mostly of uh, black people, but sometimes of Sicilians. And um, at that particular point, the Irish were fighting, rival Irish uh, politicians were fighting. So what they did is they weren't very good at fighting, so they brought in Italian hoods from New York. And one side assassinated uh, the candidate on the other and wounded some policemen that set, set off everything. But it was sort of, uh, it was people trying to appear outside agitators or someone else had did that and they didn't own responsibility. I myself had been savagely mobbed a few times, and often involves because I 
challenge some sacred cow or some sacred idea. And so someone will say, yeah, but when he wrote this paper on the eighth questionnaire, it was a fig leaf for uh, quietly uh, promoting adult sexual exploitation. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.